Thank you for downloading or podcasting this track. This recording has been remastered to provide the best sound possible given the audio environment of the original recording session. Mosaic Silver Spring is a faith community located just inside the Capitol Beltway in Montgomery County. For more information, please visit our website, www.mosaicsilverspring.org, and we'll see you in the neighborhood. Hi, I'm Lottie, and I'll be reading Matthew 10, 1 through 15. And he called to him his 12 disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. The names of the 12 apostles are these. First, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector, James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus, Simon, the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. These 12 Jesus sent out, instructing them, go nowhere among the Gentiles and enter no town of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel and proclaim as you go, saying, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, cast out demons. You received without paying, give without pay. Acquire no gold or silver or copper for your belts, no bag for your journey, or two tunics or sandals or a staff, for the laborer deserves his food. And whatever town or village you enter, find out who is worthy in it and stay there until you depart. As you enter the house, greet it. And if the house is worthy, let your peace come upon it. But if it is not worthy, let your peace return to you. And if anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, shake off the dust from your feet when you leave that house or town. Truly, I say to you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. This is the word of the Lord. Father, please open our hearts today as we listen to Pastor Joel's words. Um, open our hearts to receive your message to us this morning. Amen. Thanks so much, Lottie. Just as a note, uh, a little bit later in the service, we are going to have a question uh, and maybe some answer time, uh, at least a time to work through this actively as a community. And so as we work through the close of our Living as the Beloved series, then we encourage you to actively think about what's being said here and how this plays out in your own life. Through this series, we have looked at the life and teaching of Jesus through the Gospel of Matthew. Jesus shows up onto the scene announcing that the kingdom of God has arrived. It is breaking in. This new thing is now here. And he calls people, all who have ears to hear and eyes to see, to repent and to turn to what God is doing here and now through the life and ministry of Jesus. He begins to unpack for people who are interested in this news. Here's what it looks like to live as part of the people of God. Here's what it means to you 
when because of the work of Jesus, God looks at you and calls you beloved, that comes with it a life-shaping, life-altering effect. It changes how you think about yourself. It changes how you think about and care for others. It changes how you think about an approach to God in terms of doing good things and what that means for you. It changes how you consider what daily life looks like for you, whether uh, you're a young one who is a part of our congregation, so you're in school and a part of a family, or whether you are single and you are participating in the life of Mosaic, or whether you are married or widowed or widower, uh, across the board, regardless of your generation or ethnicity, living as the beloved is in effect a calling on your life. And so as we come to the close of this series that we've covered through the fall, looking at the teaching of Jesus and how it comes to bear on how we see ourselves in the world, how we see our participation in just what God is doing, we are reminded in the Gospel of Matthew of the mission that God has given his people. That uh, life for us is more than just going to school. Life for us is more than just showing up for our job in order to ensure that the direct deposit comes through so that we can pay off the things that need to be paid. As important as that may be, that is not what life looks like for the beloved. There's more. And so Jesus is calling the disciples to himself to prepare them and empower them to go through life, recognizing not only the importance of day-to-day -day school or work or caring for your family, all those things are important, but moreover, how that connects with what God is doing in the world, the mission that he has called us on. In a 2002 article in The Economist, in their Asia section, they unpacked, it was very short, but they talked about why Thai restaurants are so available to us, uh, particularly for people who live in cities. So if you pause for a moment and you say, do I have a Thai place that I regularly put my order in if I'm hungry on a day of the week and I don't want to make something, where's my go-to Thai place? If, by the way, you need recommendations, see me at the connect time, and I'll be happy to ensure that you leave today with a good Thai place, but that's a little bit not the point. The point of the Economist article is like, how did it come to be for us that uh, there's a Thai place seemingly in every neighborhood that you have access to? Like, how did that happen? And in 2002, they talked about a government program that involved uh, an export-import bank and some financing and some other things that are things that you would read about in The Economist. But what's important for you to know is that the Thai government said, hey, one of the ways that we can reach out to the world is starting Thai restaurants because we've got good food. And they started this pilot program back in uh, the early 2000s, and uh, pretty much it took off. 
And so the goal kept getting higher and higher. It went from like 500 to 1,000 to 3,000 to like more than 10,000 Thai food places across the world, often very disproportionate to the percentage of uh, Thai uh, members of a given uh, society. Thai restaurants were there. In 2018, Vice picked up on this and ran an article uh, basically asking the question, like, why are there so many Thai food places with such good Thai food that you can get to? And the answer was the Thai government had a hand in helping send out Thai cooks and Thai trained people to start restaurants and then funded them across the world. They called it, in that Vice article, gastro diplomacy. Uh, I thought that was a witty name. Uh, Good job, Vice. The point is that they saw an opportunity to uh, test something out and look at this program and fund it to see, could this take off? And then it took off and it kept growing and crossing different cultural boundaries and growing and growing and growing. This small starting point of this pilot program to start Thai restaurants across the world grew and blew up in ways that weren't even imaginable uh, that connect to your everyday life. So while you know that there's a Thai food place that you can order from here in Down County, do you know how that got there? Do you know the backstory of the Export-Import Bank? Probably not, unless you're an avid reader of The Economist. This is what Jesus is doing in the calling of the disciples to himself here in the Gospel of Matthew. It's likely because you're here this morning that you have heard of the Christian faith. You've heard about Christianity. You've heard the phrase church. You have heard the name of Jesus. But here in the Gospel of Matthew, we're seeing the beginning formations of how this started. We aren't in the first century. We don't live around the Galilean area of the world. That's not the neighborhood that we go shopping in or go, uh, go out uh, to the local parks at. So how did it get to us? We catch a glimpse of the formation of God's sending out mission here in the Gospel of Matthew kingdom of God starts as this small seed and begins to grow up and to grow out across time and place. At this point, the initial sending instructions to the disciples become a part of not it becomes just this small part of what it looks like to continue for us to participate in God's mission. We are a part of a people that have been sent. And so while we may think occasionally about the ways it looks like for us to live as Christians in the world, Matthew and more specifically Jesus is calling us to see this connection going all the way back to the announcement of God's kingdom, that God's people are a sent people. That those who turn to Jesus in faith, who live as the beloved, from that point forward, not only have lives that are affected by it, but now are invited in and called out on a mission from God.
We're going to look at that mission in two points this morning from chapter 10. The first is calling to himself, and the other is sending to the world. And so you'll see them up here, calling to himself and sending to the world. In verse 1, Jesus calls together the 12 disciples, and he gives them authority uh, to uh, cast out demons, authority over unclean spirits, to heal every disease and affliction. And then in verse 2 through 4, we catch their names. Jesus is calling together the disciples to himself to empower them to go out. And uh, specifically told here not only their names, but that there are 12 of them probably, probably carrying uh, this symbolic power of the 12 nations of Israel. New Testament scholar Craig Keener notes that the 12 as a shorthand uh, for the disciples stuck around so that even when their numbers dropped to 11, they didn't change it and called them 11. They continued to call them the 12, that this symbolic power held uh, particularly through the early centuries in the church. And so Jesus calls them together, some of them from uh, middle class professions and homes, Uh, They certainly are across the political spectrum, at least from what we're told in the text. So there was some diversity to them. And uh, they are being sent out. After we're given their names in verses 2 through 4, in verses 5 and 6, we get the geographic emphases of starting with the lost sheep of the house of Israel. In this first test run of sending the disciples out on a mission, from the disciples becoming the apostles, uh, from those who have come to Jesus to learn and understand about the news of the kingdom, to those who are being sent out, what the root word of apostle means, those who are sent out, Jesus gives them initially a narrowed mission. Go to those who are part of the house of Israel— to tell them that the kingdom of heaven has arrived. And so when he calls them to himself, he gives them specific direction to travel in verses 5 through 6. And I think it's important to note, since uh, that may stick out here in this text to you, as God is uh, created the world, and after the fall of humanity and the introduction of sin into the world, as God begins his redemption of the world, his rebuilding of the world to its ultimate restoration, he does that through uh, the nation of Israel in the Old Testament. You can remember back to our covenant series where we talked about God's covenant promises to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And that is uh, through whom Jesus arrives on the scene announcing God's kingdom. And so it's almost as if uh, God had created a house, if you can think of the metaphor of a home, and some damage had happened to the house. And so God begins his project of renovating the home and expanding it far beyond its original design. And in that expansion, the room or wing or place that he starts to repair and rebuild is the one in which he has lived and come from. So it's in the room of the people of Israel, the lost sheep of Israel, 
Israel that God's restoration begins, but that's not where it ends. And so here in these specific instructions in verse 5 and 6, you get the sense that in this first run of the disciples becoming apostles, as Jesus has called them to himself, the, the outbuilding of God's renovation project for his people across the world is beginning with those closest to him. And so in verse 7, he begins to send them out to the world, and he gives them a what and a how. Verse 7 is the what to say, and verses 8 through 15 is, in effect, the how to say it. So as he, Jesus, sends the apostles now out into the world, in verse 7 he says, Proclaim as you go, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. That's the message. While that may be a little bit foreign to us, maybe if I could translate it a little bit into 21st century vernacular so you can understand. Imagine if you have experienced some measure of loneliness, some measure of relational pain, some measure of injustice in the world, some bit of weariness in reading the news and wondering when are things going to come together so that the marginalized aren't hurt and life for me is peaceful and I can do well. In the first century, the time period for all of those things to happen is when God's kingdom arrived. That was the event that people looked forward to when God's reign over the world, when his powerful hands would show up in people's lives. And so that's what they looked forward to. So when the apostles now sent begin to announce that the kingdom of heaven is at hand, what they're announcing is that God is beginning to work in the world toward peace and justice and goodness. And so the disciples become apostles and are sent out to declare that in Jesus Christ, God is doing something the kingdom has arrived. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. And in verses 8 through 15, he gives a number of ways of how to say it. So notice Jesus' instructions aren't to go to the local market and stand on the back of a cart and to just scream at people. The message is important. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. You should make that clear to those around you, to the people who you come in contact with. Let them know God's kingdom has arrived in Jesus. But do more than that. In verses 8 through 15, he tells them, Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, cast out demons. He is telling them, begin the restorative, redemptive work in people's lives who you come into contact with. The list here are the things that people would look for when they said, how is the world becoming a better place? For them, it would involve victory over supernatural tormentors. It would involve uh, illnesses not being a major part of people's lives. It, it would involve a sense that God is at work. And that's what Jesus tells the disciples to do. He continues on to give them instructions, uh, much, of much of which involve, hey, don't go out for the money. Uh, he talks about how to interact with people. 
talks about how to make ends meet, so to speak, on this short-term mission trip before they come back. Uh, and then he tells them what to do based on how people respond. And so he gives them in verses 8 through 15 a how to go about announcing this message. I think there's an important thing that I want you to catch in verses 7 through 15. It's that living out the mission of God, both for the disciples in the first century and for us today, how that building goes forward involves both word and deed. What it means is to participate in what God is doing in the world involves being clear what God is doing in the world and what is the motivating and driving factor for who we are as Christians. It means that we can do amazing things, but we can't lose sight of this good news proclaiming Jesus' victory over sin and death. That is a part of what it means for Christians to be Christians the world over across time and culture. This is what it means to hear the good news. And so that word part can't be lost for us. We can't lose sight of what it is that we're doing in the world. We can't be caught up in just the mundane details of day over day that we lose sight that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. But it's not merely word, it's also deed. That we continue in the 21st century as a church to carry out redemptive and restorative acts individually and as a community. It means that we continue to love our neighbors well. We continue to give of ourselves to help others. We think about the ways in which our gifts and resources can come to bear to love and serve the people around us. So that when you think about God's mission, the question may come up for you, well, what does teaching uh, at, at uh, this specific school have to do with the mission of God? Or what does my day-to-day -day work in my family have to do with the mission of God? Or what does my commute to school or the schoolwork that I have to do have to do with the mission of God? Or what does the way in which I interact with my neighbors have to do with the mission of God? And to those questions, Jesus is answering part of who we are as the beloved is to continue the announcement that in Jesus Christ, the kingdom of God is at hand. So that as we come across people who are struggling, no matter whether that's struggling relationally or struggling financially, or struggling with their mental health, or all of those things combined, that we think through how to love and care for them being driven and motivated by the work of Jesus. So that in this first commission, so to speak, in Matthew 10, Jesus at the end of the Gospel of Matthew expands. It's not just that room of the house that the people of God are to work on. It goes to the ends of the earth. In Matthew chapter 28, verses 16 through 20, Jesus gathers the disciples to him again. And Jesus said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. 
Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Jesus empowers the disciples to go to the ends of the earth. He makes disciples into apostles, and that is what we are called into at Mosaic Silver Spring. So that now part of what it means to be a part of Mosaic is that we actively think through how can we make known in word and deed just what God has accomplished through Jesus. And in uh, living in a secular world where talking about being a Christian may be found as strange by your neighbors or coworkers or the people around you, or uh, talking even about uh, a God who created the world and is interacting with it, uh, people may not know what to make of that. We, as part of God's mission to the world, in both word and deed, continue to make this good news known and invite in all who have ears to hear and eyes to see. That is what it means to continue on mission as God's beloved. And that sounds kind of daunting. It's always weird for me as a pastor when I have conversations with people at a soccer game or uh, when I'm out and about or when I run into neighbors walking the dog. And the conversation usually goes like, oh, hey, what's your name? Yeah, but what's your name? And then shortly after, and I'm sure this isn't just me, it comes like, well, what do you do for a living? <laughs> and when I say pastor, it is surprising often how people respond. They don't know quite what to make of that. But that is the time and place that we now operate. So that when you are sharing what, what your name is and what you do, a part of knowing who you are as the beloved is understanding that you're called to make known in word and deed just what God is doing in the world. And that can be daunting. That can be challenging. That can be scary. You can wonder, how can I do that well? The assurance that we have as Christians is that Jesus is with us. In the midst of our own struggles, in the midst of our own anxieties, in the midst of our own uncertainties, in the midst of the weird responses that we see day in and day out, Jesus promises to be with us. So that as we work out how to make clear in word and deed that we are the beloved and that others are invited into what God is doing, and that's part of our mission to the world, Jesus promises to be with us. So that when we gather on Sunday mornings, we can have a tangible reminder that you're not alone. It's not up to just you. Jesus is with us. His spirit has been poured out into our lives. God does not send us out to go do something that he's unfamiliar with. And he doesn't send us out alone. He promises to walk alongside us. In 1928, just a few years before his death, John Shedd uh, put together a book. So 1928, almost 100 years ago. And it was a short book called Salt from My Attic where he collected together uh, pithy sayings, uh, quotes that he liked, and he kind of put it all together in one book. And one of those sayings that has stuck around, and so you'll see it here or there, is this. It's a quote from Salt from My Attic. 
A ship and harbor is safe, but that's not what ships are built for. A ship and harbor is safe, but that's not what ships are built for. And so as we as a church think through what it means to be about God's mission, one of the challenges for us as we come through the pandemic, as we struggle through the relational challenges that we face, is that we can get to a spot where we can say, I don't know that I want to go out there. I've seen the storms of relational strife. I've seen the storms of the effects of the pandemic. Uh, It just seems safer to not mess with any of that. But to that, Jesus reminds us that as the beloved, God has called us to go out into the world. He has called us to continue to move forward in word and deed to love those around us. And he's not left us to do it alone. He promises as we venture out of the harbor of our safe spots that he will be with us, that he will uphold us today, tomorrow, and forever. That is how Christians continue forward in the mission of God. That is how we live as the beloved. Let me pray. God, I ask that you will help us in the ways in which we struggle, in the ways in which we are called to make known who you are and what you're doing in the world. Help us not to be overwhelmed with fear. Help us to overcome the anxiety that may be natural in giving of ourselves to love others or sharing about where our faith is found. Help us, I pray, God, to be faithful as your beloved sons and daughters. In Jesus' name, amen.